Well, let me pray for us once more, and then we're going to look at the Scriptures together. Our Father in heaven, uh, thank you that, that we can sing of blood shed and of a man dying on a cross. Uh, and we are not being morbid because that man is not dead. That man is risen. He is our brother and he is our king and he is seated at your right hand even right now. And there is a moment that you have appointed that is rapidly approaching when He will come again in power and we will see Him. We will see Him in His glory. And even in His glory, we will see the holes in His hands and His side. Because there is so much glory in what He has done for us. Help us, Lord, to again to taste His glory tonight in Your Word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The text we're going to look at tonight is uh, Luke chapter 22, verses 24 to 30. I encourage you to turn there in the Bible. Luke chapter 22. Um, And I, I want to read to you from, starting with verse 14 through verse 30 the institution of the Lord's Supper, and the ensuing dispute about which disciples were the greatest. And when the hour came, he, that is the Lord Jesus, reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he'd given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup after he'd eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them it could be, who was going to do this. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who have stayed with me in in my trials. And I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom, 
that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Now, uh, as, as we as a congregation are getting to know each other better and better, uh, you will discover, as many of you who were at All Nations Church with me for years, discovered that uh, when I am tired and feeling tired, I like to return to those passages of the Scripture that I love the most when I'm preaching and teaching. And I also like to stick very closely to my notes. So in seasons of stress in my own life, uh, I, I end up preaching sermons from the Psalms and from the Gospels. And uh, I end up having longer, uh, longer notes that I look down at more often than usual. So uh, that's what you get tonight. I am tired. And I love this passage. So I've prepared a sermon uh, ab about this passage. And the Lord who is uh, portrayed for us here. Uh, and I've written extensive notes so that I don't get lost. Okay. <clears throat> um, part of the reason that I love this passage so much is... Uh, it is focused on the greatness of the Lord Jesus Christ. His greatness is on display here. Uh, but also, he's very clear about what that greatness really looks like. About what greatness in the kingdom of God is. Even as he himself illustrates it. And the two points that I have for you from this text are, one, the greatness in the kingdom. Greatness in the kingdom of God. And two, the greatness of the king. So we'll talk about what greatness is, which Jesus teaches his disciples. And then we'll talk about him who's doing the teaching. Now in context here, this is in the final hours of the Lord Jesus' earthly ministry. Uh, we're in the upper room at this point. Jesus has, he has lived a whole lifetime under the, the burden of a fallen world and corrupted humanity, yet he without sin. He has begun his earthly ministry and the pressure has been intensifying. The, the heat has been building as he's been under increasing scrutiny and opposition. And he has walked that long road to Jerusalem. He set his face to Jerusalem, as Pastor Lamb made a point a few weeks ago. And, and here he is, just hours away from the cross now. Judas uh, has already betrayed him to the Pharisees, and, and Jesus knows that that great betrayal is coming in Gethsemane very soon. And he has this intimate time with his disciples in the upper room, this last supper where he shows them what he's about to do in breaking the bread and giving it to them and pouring out the cup, the wine, and giving it to them. I'm about to give myself to you, to sustain you. <clears throat> Though they don't understand it, uh, he's making this clear for them in the supper. And 
they respond by immediately getting in an argument about which one of them is the greatest. It sounds odd, doesn't it? You imagine that, that Last Supper, them seated together, the Lord Jesus doing this precious thing. And a dispute arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. I mean, it sounds a little bit bizarre. But I, th- I think you can imagine the way this could have happened um, if, we, if we allow our imagination to run a little bit. Jesus had just said the hand of his betrayer is at the table with him. And immediately the disciples begin to defend themselves. Well, not me. I would never betray you, Lord. They probably start pointing fingers. What about him? You know, he was a tax collector. Everybody knows they can't be trusted. Their reputation precedes them. Well, what about you? You're just a fisherman. Well, I was among the first that Jesus called. I've been faithful the longest. Someone else might have responded, well, yeah, but I I left far more behind than you did. What'd you leave? Nets? However it happened, their response to Jesus' announcement about this betrayer in their midst very quickly turns into a jockeying for position, a dispute as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And as you may know, this was not the first time that the disciples had this argument. It's recorded often in the Gospels that they circled back to this. In Luke chapter 9, they argued about who was the greatest, and Jesus told them the greatest in the kingdom was the one who was the least like a child. There was that incident where James and John's mother came and asked Jesus if they could sit at his left and right hand of the kingdom. How embarrassing. And all the other disciples got upset. There was the time when Jesus asked them what they'd been talking about along the road. And they wouldn't answer because they'd been arguing again about which one of them was the greatest. This was evidently their go-to argument. Just like a married couple that ends up returning to the same fight about the same thing over and over again, so the disciples fought about which one of them was the greatest over and over again. Now that may sound like an odd thing to fight about, but remember, these are 12 men whom Jesus had called out of a variety of circumstances to become his disciples. And through much of his ministry, they were operating under the incorrect assumption that he was there to set up an earthly empire. And they, his faithful followers, were to rule in that empire with him. That when he usurped the Romans and sat on his throne like King David before him, they would be by his side, wielding power in the restored Israel as his faithful servants. And so, in a way, it was natural that as they followed him all over the countryside, anticipating this great day, they would discuss who would occupy what position in the new administration when their Lord established it. Even so, in the upper room, this is a stunningly inappropriate conversation to be having at this moment, isn't it? Jesus has just broken the bread, and he shared it with them as a symbol of what he was going to do with his body in just a few hours. 
He'd passed around a cup of wine as a symbol of what he was going to do in pouring out his own blood for them very soon. And then he tells them, despite this incredible sacrifice he's making for them, one of them, one of his closest disciples, is planning to betray him. And what is their response in this? Gratitude? Compassion? Defensiveness? And they start to argue again about who is the greatest. Now, as is often the case, it's easy for us to roll our eyes at the disciples for their pride and their ignorance here. The reality is, though, as is also often the case, we aren't really much different when we think about it carefully. I mean, if we're honest with ourselves, friends, we also want people to think we're great, don't we? I mean, not to put too fine a point on it. (laughs) We don't often argue about it with each other openly, but we want other people to recognize how smart we are or how talented we are or how hardworking we are or how likable we are or how spiritual we are. The reality is we all want to be liked. We all want to be praised. We all want to look good and do well. In fact... If we're really honest about it, we all want to look better and do better than others and have others recognize it and praise us for it. The disciples aren't so unique. Even when it comes to the Christian life, being disciples of the Lord Jesus ourselves, we often begin to think this way. We want to be good at raising our kids in a Christian way. We want to be good at showing up at church on time and worshiping the right way. We want to be good at teaching the Bible or singing or giving or evangelism or whatever it is so that other people will see that we are spiritual. We're good at this and think more highly of us. That's just like the disciples. We do want to be great. We want other people to know it. But what that does unchecked in the Christian life is that it takes the freedom that comes from the gospel and it turns it ultimately into a crushing burden. Just like this desire for greatness has blinded these men in the upper room to the incredible thing happening right before them, the Lord Jesus himself instituting this supper. So our desire for greatness can blind us from the gospel reality before us as well. Our our always seeking greatness can take the gospel community in which we should be loving each other in Christ's name and bearing one another's burdens, and it can turn it into an audience for which we must be constantly performing. It can take the blessing of the means of grace like Bible reading and prayer and fellowship together, and it can turn them into a curse as we try to use them to outdo one another and impress one another. But, thanks be to God, Jesus delivers us from the burden and frees us from the curse. When, at this most inappropriate moment, his disciples are quarreling about greatness and trying to exalt themselves over each other, Jesus does not throw up his hands and roll his eyes and say, enough. He doesn't kick them all out of the upper room and go call some decent disciples at the last minute 
Instead, he humbles himself yet again, and he gently instructs them yet again about the way greatness really works in the kingdom of God. And that's the first point that I want to make to you here. Point one, greatness in the kingdom. Jesus redefines for them what greatness even is. The first thing our Lord does here in verse 24, verse 25, after they have this dispute has arisen among them, is he reminds them the way greatness works in the world. Verse 25 And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. The way leadership and authority usually worked at this time was not dissimilar to the way that it still works today. A great person, a powerful person in authority in society, like a king or a governor or the owner of a powerful business, who has control of all the resources, can pretty much live however they please and do however they please and dictate to others how they are to live and do. Kings would exercise lordship from their position of power for their own benefit, and everyone else beneath them pretty much had to do as they were told. That's the way power worked then, and that's the way power works today. And also then, as is still the case today, great people with power and authority do like to have special titles. Benefactor is the one referred to here in the text. Those in authority over them are called benefactors. That was an English translation of a, a pretty typical title for powerful people in the first century, though it is thoroughly ironic in a way. The word benefactor really means, you know, a person who gives generously to others. But this was a title that powerful people in Jesus' day would often insist their subjects use to refer to them. Even as they lived for themselves primarily and lorded their authority over others, they wanted other people to call them benefactors. Again, we see that sort of thing even today. You watch television and incredibly wealthy people with more money than they could ever spend piled up go on television. They go on Oprah. And what is their job title at the bottom there? Philanthropist. Benefactor. Somebody who gives their money away. That's the way greatness operated in the world then, and it really hasn't changed. Great people who have made it to the top of the heap and have power and authority, they use their greatness to live how they please, and they want others to recognize their greatness with titles and other forms of respect. That's the way humanity operates. That's what Jesus is saying. The kings of the Gentiles. Now our Lord brings this up, and then in verse 26, he turns this whole paradigm on its head. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. Now, in the first century, this time in history, when Jesus was saying these things, 
Older people in society were usually treated with an enormous amount of respect and deference, and younger people were not. The wisdom that came with age and experience was held in high regard, so young people would stand when older people entered the room. They'd listen when their elders spoke. They would assume a posture, the posture of a servant, when something needed to be done. Elders were superior and younger folks were inferior. You'll notice it is very much inverted in our society today. Here Jesus says, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. In other words, let the revered one become as somebody uh, of little significance. Let the highest one act like the lowest. Let the veteran act like the rookie. Let the CEO act like an intern. Let the one who has the power to command respect for him or herself instead freely offer that respect to others and willingly be lowered to the place of a servant choose that place. Now this is one of the simple statements from our Lord, one of so many statements like these that are so simple and yet mean so much and just go deeper and deeper the more you think about it. I mean, he is instructing his disciples to have those who would be the greatest among them, who would be the leaders, the ones with the most authority, deserving the most respect, instead of fighting for that respect, willingly take the place of the least, the youngest, the servants in relation to others. They, the greatest, should be the ones who do the hard things, are willing to do what other people don't want to do. The jobs others might consider menial and beneath them, unimportant and undignified. They should let Others go first. They should let others take the larger share. They should listen and let others do the talking. Instead of using other people for their benefit, they should look for ways that they can be used to benefit others. And instead of drawing attention and praise for themselves, they should intentionally choose to give their attention to those who are being ignored and praise to those who are unrecognized. They should make it a practice to put other people first, is what I'm saying. Or as Paul puts it in Philippians chapter 2, in humility to count others more significant than yourselves. This is the paradigm for how all of us in Christ are to live our lives. And friends, that needs to be remembered. I'm guessing that what I'm telling you right now is not innovative for many of you to hear. It's not something you haven't heard before. It's not something that you think, wow, that's a novel take on this text that he's bringing to us this evening. You're familiar with this. And yet, I'm guessing probably a lot of you are sitting here like I was sitting the other day when I read this and thinking, oh boy, I forgot about this. <laughs> I forgot about this. This dynamic the Lord Jesus makes so clear, it is, 
so easy to slip out of our minds and we begin to think like the kings of the Gentiles do and operate just like the world. It is especially important for those of us who are in or who aspire to be in positions of leadership or authority in the church. The greatest among us disciples, those with the most gifts and abilities and energies and resources, must make themselves the least. And those who want to stand up and lead and exercise authority in the church must willingly, cheerfully make themselves servants of all. It's important for you to know that and remember that because you're the ones who pick your leaders, right? I don't mean this in the sense that if you want to be a leader in the church, you need to clean toilets for a little while and pay your dues. But you need to prove you're willing to be a servant before you can enjoy being an authority. That's not what I mean. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. What Jesus is saying is that in the kingdom of God, greatness is serving. The people who clean and visit the sick and set up the chairs and mop the floors and sit down and listen patiently to folks who come in off the street with long stories, the people who pray diligently for others and recognize the grace of God at work in others and seek opportunities to serve others, these people are the greatest, is what Jesus is saying. The church simply doesn't operate like the world does. You don't show up and say, I can do this and I can do that, so I should be in charge. It doesn't work that way. That's not how it operates here. We have a fundamentally different paradigm. If somebody thinks God is calling me to leadership in the church, but they are not a servant in the church, they are wrong. Because Jesus Christ himself says that in his church, the greatest act like the youngest, and the leader is the one who serves. Leaders in the church are not recognized primarily on the basis of their gifts and abilities, but in the Christ-like of their character, Christ-likeness of their character. And that's the point Jesus is making in the very next verse when he refers to himself, verse 27. For who is the greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. What he's doing here in pointing out his own behavior is he is confirming the reality of what he is teaching them and using himself as an illustration. Jesus is by far the greatest among them. He has demonstrated that again and again and again, and they don't even know the half yet. And yet he makes himself their servant, all of them. He's just washed their feet. It is impossible to understate, oh sorry, to overstate the greatness of who Jesus Christ is. He is God's own son, the heir of heaven and earth. He is the king of all creation, very God of very God. He's the first and the last, the alpha and the omega. All the angels in heaven praise him for all eternity. And all creation groans to join their song and for all things to be as they should be, submitted under his feet. 
And yet, this very Jesus, this second person of the Trinity, though he was in the form of God, he did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. He did not cling to the respect and honor rightfully due to him as God. But rather, he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. He lowered himself from heaven to the manger where he became a human being like us, linking himself to our fallen and corrupted race forever. And then being found in human form, he humbled himself even further by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. He submitted to his Father's will, even though it involved him becoming accursed and dying the shameful and agonizing death of a criminal on a cross. He lowered himself not just to unite with us in our humanity, but to unite himself to our punishment, our condemnation for our sins. And there on the cross, he bore that condemnation himself. As our brother and our high priest, he absorbed the full wrath of God for us and himself. He paid the price and bore the penalty in our place. That, friends, is what greatness really is, you see. That's the point he's making. It is the greatest being in all the universe willingly making himself like nothing lowering himself below his wretched and hard-hearted enemies to become their servant and rescue them. And if he would become great, if we would become great, we must become like him. We've got to remember that. It's very easy to think of the church as just like any other organization, just like any other institution, just with a different agenda. We have a different goal. But we operate just like our government operates like that government. Our hierarchy operates like that hierarchy. It does not. It's absolutely upside down. There's a whole different world that we live in. We've got to remember that and we've got to, to walk in the reality of it. Now I imagine this these verses stopping the disciples' argument pretty quickly that night in the upper room. <clears throat> Jesus' definition of greatness is totally the opposite of what they were seeking for themselves and quarreling about. And the truth of it was and is undeniable. He says, I am among you as one who serves. Period. But he does go on. Having redefined greatness for them, he demonstrates further his own greatness with his very next words. Verse 28. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials. Now, if you've read the Gospels carefully, you come to this verse and you say, Really? Did they stay with him in his trials? <laughs> I mean, remember, the disciples are not exactly a picture of faithfulness and steadfastness at this point in the gospel narratives. In fact, 
We've seen their weakness again and again in the Gospels. And on multiple occasions, Jesus has rebuked them specifically for their lack of faith. And as we know, and Jesus knew as well, they would all fall away from him. They would forsake him in just a few hours. Jesus knew that when Judas and the Roman soldiers arrested him in the garden, his disciples would all scatter. Even Peter, who made all these promises, would crumble under the pressure. Even right now, this very conversation is taking place because they started arguing about which one of them was the greatest. Right after he illustrated with the Last Supper the great trial he was about to undergo, the disciples didn't really provide much for Jesus in the way of faithful companionship in his trials, did they? And yet he tells them here very clearly, you are those who've stayed with me in my trials. Why does he say that? Why does Jesus commend these men at this point specifically for their faithfulness? Well, the the answer is, I believe, at least part of the answer, is because Jesus is the good shepherd who loves his sheep. And at this moment in the upper room, in the calm before the storm of his arrest and his crucifixion, he is caring for them. And he's caring for them selflessly. Again, when they, when they stick their collective foot in their collective mouth, arguing about who's the greatest here, Jesus does not say, how many times have I told you? But he starts to gently instruct them, and then he commends them. Surely to encourage them. I think what we're seeing here in part is our Lord's unshakably pastoral heart for his disciples. He loves them. I mean, they're a mess. They are this ragtag band of largely, at this point, ignorant and self-centered and unfaithful sheep who are quick to quarrel, quick to stray, scatter at the first signs of trouble. But they are his sheep. And he has called them and he's made himself their shepherd and he's a good shepherd. And so even here, as he's explaining how he is about to break his body and pour out his blood for for them, and they respond by quarreling about which is the greatest, he looks on them with compassion He is patient and he is kind. He bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. He looks on these selfish men. He's not blind to their failings. But in and among all of their sins, he searches out the virtue in them like he is panning for gold. And he finds it. These men have followed him to the end. When many disciples turned their back on him and walked away, these did not. Sure, their discipleship was marred by almost constant failures and signs of weakness and faithlessness. Oh, but here in the last hours before his death, they were still with him. And as self-centered as their motives may have been, as backwards as their understanding of his mission was, Here in his final hours, they were still with him. They were still beside their master. They had not left him. And Jesus praises them for their faithfulness. 
He lays hold of this relatively small nugget of faithfulness. And he dusts it off so that it shines and he lifts it up and he praises them for it. And of course he knows where to find the faithfulness. He put it there, right? This is the heart of a good shepherd. A shepherd whose love covers an ocean of unfaithfulness and then celebrates and makes much of even the smallest hint of obedience. This is what Jesus is like. We should be careful not to forget that either, friends. He is not like you and me, or we tend to be. He's not the father who only reacts when his children do something wrong and holds his approval forever just out of their reach. He's not a husband who only criticizes his wife for her imperfections and repeats the same message, spoken or unspoken, day after day, you aren't good enough for me. Our God is not like that. He is a good shepherd. He is meek and gentle and humble in heart. He does not beat his sheep over the head for their weakness and unfaithfulness. He does not break the bruised reed or snuff out the faintly burning wick. Instead, he tirelessly seeks out the faintest traces of heat. And when he finds small, smoldering embers of faith in his disciples, he gets down and gently, patiently fans them into flame. He smiles and says to his disciples, you are those who have stayed with me in trial. Now, brothers and sisters, we should strive to be like Christ in this way too. Instead of paying attention only to the failures and the flaws in each other and making much of every opportunity to criticize and to rebuke, we should make it our practice to look for praiseworthy things in those around us, to celebrate them, to look for grace in our children, to look for small acts of service in our spouse, to diligently look for signs of Christ-likeness in our fellow church members, and when we see them, to acknowledge them, to commend them, to encourage them, and fan those embers into flame as much as we're able. <clears throat> Friends, Grace Church, we need to not ascribe to what is really a warped concept of Christian fellowship that makes us all full-time sin police whose primary calling is to point out error and inspect specs. Yes, correcting and exhorting one another is part of healthy Christian fellowship, and not to be neglected. If you've been to my Sunday school class, we spent several weeks discussing that very fact recently. But we should not act as if the Scriptures did not say, as if the Scriptures did say, they will know you by your fault-finding and your scrutinizing. They will know you by your sourness and your skepticism. The Lord Jesus said they'll know you by your love, didn't he? The mark of the Christian community, the church of Jesus Christ, is love as we cling to the gospel together. Wise and discerning love that humbles itself and looks for signs of grace in weak and wounded sinners and rewards it and encourages it. 
We are people who love in a way that makes us eager to speak words that build up and give grace to those who hear. Love that makes us tender-hearted and forgiving as God in Christ forgave us. That's what our Lord is doing here with his disciples in the upper room. His time with them is ended. In a few hours, the shepherd will lay down his life for his sheep. He will allow himself to be struck down and the flock will scatter. And here at their last meal together, he doesn't shake his head and throw up his hands and speak to them harshly or impatiently about all the sin that remains in them. It would have been justified. But instead, he encourages them. And he builds them up and he praises them for their small faithfulness, which is, of course, evidence of grace that he himself put there. But he's pleased with it regardless. And he takes this opportunity to bind up these bruised reeds. But really, his praise for their faithfulness is just the beginning of his mercy of his kindness, of his greatness towards them. Look at verse 29. And I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Now judging in this context almost surely is a reference to ruling is a reference to ruling, as it does in the book of Judges, not, not on passing judicial sentences as our judges do today. Some commentators believe that by saying they will sit on thrones and judge the twelve tribes of Israel, Jesus is referring to a place of special prominence for his disciples to enjoy in heaven. It's also entirely possible, though, that Jesus is telling his disciples here in the upper room about the prominent place of authority that they will soon have in his church, his kingdom coming on the earth. He was saying to them, in a sense, you all want to be great in my kingdom. Well, you will be. I'm assigning to you to sit in a place of authority in my church. And that is exactly what happened, right? The disciples did enjoy a place of prominence and authority in the early church. They did rule with the authority of Christ. They were great in his kingdom, in a sense, but it is the sense of greatness according to the definition that Jesus himself gave, not the one of the world. They didn't rule the church from places of privilege and high towers like rulers in the world. Instead, all of these apostles poured out their lives serving and caring for God's people. And in the end, most of them had the privilege of finally giving everything for Christ and his church and martyrdom. And they were great in the way that Christ himself defines greatness. Not only that, though, he promises them they will eat and drink at his table. Now surely this is looking forward to the reward they would finally receive in heaven. Eating and drinking at my table in my kingdom is language that points to the marriage supper of the Lamb, the final feast that all the Passovers and Lord's suppers are all pointing to. When Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world, receives his bride and it is finished. 
the real reward these disciples would receive, the real blessing he was conferring on them was a place at his banquet table. The ultimate joy of being welcomed by Christ in his kingdom. Now, before they give their lives up in martyrdom, before they suffer persecution and imprisonment for his name, before Pentecost, before the cross even, Jesus tells this handful of really immature and unimpressive men, I am giving you authority in my kingdom, both to oversee my church and then to sit down with me at my banquet table. And notice what Christ has stored up for these guys. The blessings and the joys that he had planned for them. Far, far exceeding anything they'd ever done for him. They walked with him for a little while. I mean, they played a very small part in his work on earth thus far. But here he assures them that in his kingdom they would have truly royal rewards. Here in his last quiet and private moments with them, even as they have yet again displayed their selfishness and their pride. He praises their faithfulness and tells them of the great responsibility he's giving them to lead and oversee his people and also of this great reward to sit down with him at his banquet table. Could there be a clearer picture of what it is to be in Christ. Brothers and sisters, the reward that Jesus Christ promises those who trust in him are so far out of proportion with anything we could ever hope to do for him. It is staggering. Our sin and our selfishness lingers in us to our shame, and yet his generosity with us is overwhelming. And on that final day, we will be stunned when we see what he has in store for us. Joy beyond anything we could hope or imagine. I imagine that on the final day, there will be many, many saints who have limped their way through life with weak, sputtering faith and many tears. Their confidence crippled by their sins, always in the back of their mind, this assumption that Christ must be very disappointed with them only to finally arrive in his presence and discover a broad smile on his shining face and his arms open wide and the voice of the good shepherd saying to them, you stayed with me. You've been faithful to me. As we read in Matthew 25, the saints of God will look around and say, when, Lord? In that moment, they'll hardly be able to believe it because all along, they never, they never, never really understood how good Christ really was to them and what he actually accomplished on the cross, what it means that he died for our sins and satisfied the wrath of God for us and gave his righteousness to us. Never really understood fully what it means that he loves us. It won't be until that day that we finally understand that he is pleased with even the most imperfect displays of faithfulness in those who trust in him. That he sees even the smallest acts of obedience in his saints and cherishes them and forgets none of them 
And every struggling attempt to pray, every passing moment of attention given to his word, every fearful attempt to share his gospel, every struggling effort to forsake the pleasures of sin for his sake, every day spent clinging to his promises and faith, he sees all of it and he's pleased by it. Our sins he has covered with his blood and forgiven. And the good fruit of righteousness that his grace produces in us, he savors it and incredibly he rewards it. He sees our small and imperfect acts of faithfulness and he's pleased to say, well done, good and faithful servant. Now enter my rest. Here in the last moment, last moments of his ministry to his disciples, we see clearly Jesus Christ, the good shepherd with his sheep. As he is passing this ministry on to these weak men in the calm before the storm, assigning them to rule and serve his people, knowing what it will cost them. At that same moment, he also assigns to them a place at his table. He promises them they will be welcome at his wedding feast. He tells them, you have been faithful and you'll have responsibility for my people. And in the end, you will find there is a place waiting for you at my table. This is who he is that we worship. Let's, uh, let's pray together now. Our Father in heaven, thank you for the great kindness that you've shown to us. And oh, help us to, help us to not forget who Jesus is. Help us to not mistake the greatness of the world for the greatness you call us to in the kingdom. Help us not to mistake your tenderness and your love towards us. Help us not to forget what you have shown us. Have mercy on us, we pray. Christ, in your name, amen.